0: Welcome to the New Books
2: Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. This podcast probably will be cross-posted to all religion channels um, because of the impact of uh, the guest whom I have the pleasure of welcoming back to the podcast, uh, Dr. Russell T. McCutcheon, who is a university research professor and for 18 years was the chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. Uh, We'll be talking about uh, a second edition of uh, of a a seminal volume of papers in the field called uh, Critics Not Caretakers, Redescribing the Public Study of Religion. Russ, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back, Raj. This is great. So um, tell us a little bit about the impetus behind Critics Not Caretakers. What what was going on at the time that that sort of, why was this uh, timely? What was happening in the field?
1: Well, the first edition came out in 2001, and uh, it was my second book. The uh, It was a collection of essays. I didn't plan to be an essayist, but I, for a variety of reasons, you know, I could go into later if you want. I kind of became an essayist. And uh, many of the papers that were pulled together for that, SUNY uh, published the first edition, Rutledge published this new one, um, were being written right when I was finishing manuscript for what was my first book manufacturing religion which is a revised version of my dissertation that i did at uh, toronto so at the time of that book um i think one of the challenges for anybody who's who's writing is when are you adding to the current project and when are you starting a new project and often these things if you have certain coherent sets of interests or what developed to be uh, they kind of merge into each other so I'm writing these pieces at the same time as finishing that book manuscript. So the pieces, the original publication, are all from the uh, kind of uh, 95, 96, 97, 98. These are essays that I'm writing and publishing in a variety of journals. Some of the pieces in the first edition were new to that edition, but a lot of them had appeared in journals. And the occasion for writing all of them, and maybe this is why I became an essayist in some ways, I'm tenure track i'm a new uh higher uh, recent hire at the southwest missouri state what they called it at the time was i would read things given the views that i had on the field that came out in the first book i'd read things in journals that would really frustrate me like i i you know read this essay in the journal of religion or the journal of the american Academy. These standard publications in the study of religion that struck me as not in any way representing what i thought the study of religion was uh, ought to be should be etc and uh, i was uh, uh full of piss and vinegar then as the old saying goes and so i would write these unsolicited replies and commentaries and i would send them to the journal and they were rejected at times at times they they were published at times they um uh started a, a reply response, which is I, I, I love that part of journals when journals do that. The original author gets the last word. A few of the pieces were not written that way. A few of the pieces were just frustrations over current issues at that time in the field. And so I, I you know, wrote an essay and submitted it. Uh, one of the pieces that appeared in that collection on public intellectuals, uh, a couple faculty um, uh, reply to it themselves in JAR and I got a chance for a response and and at the time I I guess my voice was sufficiently novel in the field that um the reply responses at times had a, a some sparks to them shall we say a thing that we don't necessarily see that much of in the field uh, I think because a lot of people think you know the study of religion is about studying certain kinds of things and we need certain kind of disposition to do that and so our exchanges and disagreements tend to be very cordial at times and so these uh, had a, a fair bit of sparks and so i'm an early career academic and um i kind of landed on the scene with a certain kind of reputation it seems so uh, that's where this book came from
2: so critics not caretakers i mean very uh telling and descriptive title but what is the gist of the publication? Many of our listeners will will be a generalist or members of, of the public. So what's the thrust of what the book is um, accomplishing?
1: The title came from Burton Mack, um, who passed away not too long ago, a very um, influential uh, though within a limited area, and I can talk about that in a moment, scholar of the uh, Christian origin. So not just New Testament, though he wrote on the New Testament as a scholar, but also interested in the, uh, the social world from out of which this thing that we eventually come to know as Christianity arose. So we can't really use the text to account for that because the text was itself a product of that world. So how can we say some things about the factors in the Greco-Roman world that might have led to this social group forming? So in a 1989 paper of his that he gave at a, uh, a public lecture at Wesleyan uh, College, University, that wasn't published until quite some time later, he uses this phrase that we ought to be, uh, as scholars, culture critics and not caretakers for the phenomenon being studied. And so that's where I'm picking that up. And I, I try to credit Burt um, uh, directly in, in the book. So the argument of the book is that the style of scholarship that is often um, represented in the study of religion um, is a form of scholarship that, on on a continuum, of course, uh, presumes its object of study is some sort of special object that must be treated carefully and cared for, as opposed to seeing it as representative of a certain social milieu, a historical time, evidence of certain economic and political phenomena happening at the time, uh, as opposed to seeing those just as the um, stage onto which this special object is projected, expressed, manifested, embodied. We have many words over time that we've used to talk about that two-stage process. Two-stage, the inner pristine feeling, experience, affectation that is only secondarily put out into the world. And thus we find people talking about how um, history and context shapes the expression, they will never say causes. In other words, it's not a thorough, rigorous, thoroughgoing historicization of the things we study, that these are um, interesting, of course, but historical, social phenomena that can be studied like anything else. The one route um, Burton Mack calls caretaking for the object of study. And the other route he calls being a culture critic, which those who disagree with that position will quickly, uh, I'll just be frank, caricature as you're criticizing the people you study. And you're being mean and and uh, a, 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 a poor guest in their social worlds, which it strikes me that that's not what this is about in any way, shape, or form. Um, but the the title I decided on it, you know, to be purposely provocative to kind of make the point that we're not here to ensure the well being of the thing we study. Uh, we're here to study it as scholars and to place it into history, and determine its causes, etc. Do you feel
2: that that has changed? How would you characterize um, the relationship between caretakers uh, versus critics among scholars of religion, at least in, in your particular research or observation since then?
1: The challenge of a second edition, you know, why do this? And my rationale in talking to the press um, that acquired the rights from the first publisher was that I don't think much has changed at all. So the book's uh, main essays, there's a a new essay at the front end, but it's all the original essays slightly updated. But I'll tell you about the other updating uh, in a moment. They're all presented pretty much as they appeared in the original edition, because I think, you know, I don't want to sound pompous here, but I just think the book has a historical quality. It's a snapshot of the late 20th century field commenting on things that were happening in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but, but that were really happening in the 90s. And the um, interesting thing, lamentable thing, you know, what word will we put in there, is that I don't think much has changed at all, that the field is largely still comprised, I would argue, uh, of people who, um, for probably very good reasons, they think, are um, interested in a style of scholarship that, in the parlance of the book, um, cares for, supports, preserves um, the items that they happen to be studying should one study things with which one disagrees i don't want to be so flippant here but i mean i can picture all kinds of things that scholars legitimately study that you would immediately understand your role is to explain it account for it place it into a historical context in no way shape or form are you here to treat it carefully and should you do that you would a series of accusations would greet you along a spectrum from being a traitor to who knows what all, and and so I'm not looking for a style of scholarship that you know makes fun of, criticizes, but I am looking for a, uh, uh, a an equity of treatment across the things we study, regardless our own individual sentiments toward it. That we really probably don't need uh, two styles of scholarship: one for things we support or or you know i'm now i'm riffing on bruce lincoln here uh, a scholar of religion formerly at chicago things for which we have a feeling of affinity versus those things from which we're estranged we probably need to figure out how to treat them uh, equitably so the second edition seemed an opportunity to make the argument that um we're not past these issues a lot of people in the field i think you will hear people say we're post theory Yes, we understand all the problems of the category of religion, and now we just need to get on with studying it. And, and I don't think that's that's not really very persuasive to me. So the way to update the book, it struck me with all that in mind, was to write new introductions to all the pieces to say, well, uh, yeah, this, this, uh, this chapter is locked in a debate from 1997. <clears> but I think it's surprisingly relevant to what's going on today the players have changed uh, some of the um, uh, terms have changed but it's the same debate still happening and I don't think anything has been really resolved um,
2: From what you could observe or or surmise or suspect, would you say that this phenomenon is um, applies to uh, various traditions, for example, Christian studies versus Hindu studies versus Buddhist studies would you say that there are Particular strands of scholarship or traditions um, that are more vulnerable to to this pitfall, or could you characterize? Uh, could, could you comment on that at all?
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's um, um, an interesting question. I think one of the challenges in our field, and I've never really considered our field an area study. You know, I just did air quotes as I said that, but but a lot of people do, and and maybe it it ought to be considered that. Um, the challenge of a lot of feels, is that for very good reason, people with either feelings of affinity, familiarity, whatever one wants to say for the items being studied, are drawn to study them. Or conversely, uh, people with uh, strong feelings of resentment and reaction to are drawn to study. Um, you know, Maybe we find that also in chemistry. I don't know, but certainly in our part of the university, we can find that. So the um, inducements, temptations, um, in a lot of different fields to developing a bit of a two-tiered approach to how we study our material, it's very present across fields. Um, within our part of the university, You know, the academic study of religion, Um, I think it's very common to find um, strong tendencies to grant the ground rules of the item of study and simply work within those two in a classic interpretive method to understand it the right way, to interpret it better, thereby placing one um, often within a series of within a series of participant debates that have long existed about that exact thing, how best to understand this behavior, this group, this text, uh, and thus a, a, a challenge, I think, to an interpretive model of the field, which is still, I think, dominant in the field, the presumption that there is a meaning somehow locked in the item And if we just read it the right way, study it the right way, approach it the right way, uh, we can somehow uh, ascertain that meaning. For those who have gone through the intentional fallacy, the death of the author, you can imagine real challenges they would have with that whole approach to the field without such critics, let's call them now critics, ever going down the road of uh, a rigorous naturalistic scientific reduction of it you know they'll certainly be kind of kind of an anti-hermeneutical model they'll they'll adopt so we can even bracken that bracket that classic natural science critique go there if we want but we're not even necessarily going there to find a problem with that dominant model that that all too often i think to to go back to what i said uh conserves a certain kind of logic or grammar of the item that many of its own participants and users presume from the outset.
2: Hmm. So regarding the subtitle of the book, which of course has been retained in the second edition, we're describing the public study of religion. What do you mean by public study of religion? Say a bit, say a bit about that.
1: Um, all my career, uh, I've, I've, uh, been trained in and worked in public universities, so that's certainly a subtext especially coming to the U.S. Um, uh, for for a career I didn't plan to come here and like a lot of people a, a career luckily happened for me and it was in the U.S. So there's obviously the private public distinction uh, in colleges, whether, you know, major research universities or or small liberal arts colleges and you know, might be denominationally affiliated, uh, maybe not. So the argument for a style of scholarship on religion that i'm supporting along with many others but i I do think we're not in the majority in the u.s context which is where i was writing from and working that seemed to be a very useful way to frame the debate that if we're engaging in a publicly funded exercise where our constituency um, our students uh the the so-called publics to which we were accountable are diverse, varied, um, not uniformly interested in, especially given the way our field can be practiced in other domains, not necessarily interested in producing religious functionaries or theologians in certain, you know, there's many schools that that is their mission. So that struck me as um, a way of framing the issue that would have potential effect In my own setting it's not i think a universally relevant way of framing it you know that's not necessarily how the debate has been framed in europe for many years the private public distinction Uh, i'm I'm not you know constitutional scholar but there's certain american implications for how things are engaged in public what what can be taught in a grade 11 science classroom what can't be so i think the way that argument to support the same style of scholarship for which I'm advocating, take shape in a Canadian context, in a British context, in a German context, will probably all vary based on certain national sets of assumptions about how educational systems work. You know, some European settings, state funding uh, uh, finances, religious education in schools, which is a, a theological exercise, you know, perhaps. So it will take different shapes. But that was very much catered to the kind of world that uh, I was uh, living and working in at the
2: time and, and and still am. Let's pan out a little bit. Um, 30,000 foot view, you know, the world that we're in, the field that we're engaged in. What do you see, perhaps, or how would you characterize, broad strokes, the value of religious studies and what we're doing? Or I, I suppose... Um, uh, uh, post-reformation and the, the way imagine we're doing it the way you think we should be doing it you know um, what where does that fit in like what is the application and value of that in your perspective
1: that my good man is a $50,000 question right maybe maybe 50 million <laughs> yes in, in today's uh, higher ed environment in almost any national setting the attacks on the humanities I think attack it's not too strong a word, whatever we want to call this, that sooner or later, the, the lens comes around to, the conversation comes around to um, value. Now, how we define that value, that's gonna cut a lot of different ways. And thus we arrive at um, many um, defenses of the humanities today of which the academic study of religion is often on my own campus, we in the humanities, So I I would advocate for practicing it in almost a social scientific kind of way, but let's bracket that debate and put that aside for the time being. Um, Often defenses of the humanities will bristle at the so-called instrumentalization of the humanities, and that the only way to talk about the value of the humanities, or so some would push back, um, is by seeing them as as, uh, career training, as having direct job application, I, I wouldn't want to go down that road for a variety of reasons when talking about the value. Conversely, uh, it's not difficult to find, certainly in historical materials. Just this morning, I was searching around, I found an argue, an article from a, a, a conference at the University of Tennessee in 1945 on the instrumental value of the humanity. Like those debates have, have not come from nowhere. But I wouldn't want to go down the opposite road that exalts the you know, let's let's offer the caricature of the the tweed coated poetry professor or class sitting on the the quadrangle's lawn reading something and and it's on like like this kind of utterly disconnected from uh, the practical dictates of life. I'm I'm not going to go down that road either. So what do we mean by value? Um, my, my own presumption is that our students, um, and by students, I guess I'm meaning our majors and minors, the one we mostly teach here in the US with core curricular or gen ed, there's so many of our students that we teach who will never take another course. They're taking a breadth requirement, service, one class, the business student, the engineering student, the nursing, social work student to satisfy a requirement. So I think that's one conversation about value to them that we can have. But for the time being, the majors who take many courses, you know, they're going to have to feed themselves and pay bills when they graduate. So I I can't be unaware of that. So for me, the value question is answered with them in mind. And I find our students among the most interesting students because they don't have a preset formula put in front of them on day one of their undergrad. They don't know what they're going to take in their third semester their fifth semester, their eighth, And not to criticize students in professional schools, but it's very much laid out for them. They know exactly what they're taking. Um, Our students, I think, are very interesting students because they're deeply involved in uh, self-invention along the way. And so the value of what we're giving them, unless they have a direct job application, or a career goal related to the object of study itself, this text they might've studied, that group, the value that we're giving them, I, I, to them, and I'm gonna use the E word, um, entrepreneur, um, we're helping them to be, become entrepreneurial problem solvers. And I don't mean that in a classic business sense, right? And I tend to think that the lives that are gonna be presented to them, a year out of our classroom, 10 years out of our classroom, you know, whatever, are it, it's a if my own life and I'm guessing yours too is any measure it's a life of um thinking on your feet adapting to situations looking for opportunities solving problems um uh, slamming headlong into something that's way bigger than you and retreating and trying to figure out how to deal with it and a lot of the humanities I think provide that for students um in the study of religion I think, given the strong investments a lot of people put in their own lives on the things we happen to study in our field positions us really well to develop students who are very articulate in dealing with potentially high-stakes situations where there probably is no clear answer and they've got to navigate this somehow figure this out and they have to deal with people in some way that can get them to this new place they want to get to whatever their goal is and so in a whole variety of places, I think we um, um, and I think I have a better argument for that, you know, in my department chair life that I formerly had when you have to actually come up with, you know, flyers. And but at the end of the day, I think that's what we're giving our students. It's not necessarily the content. For some of them, it will be I really love studying this, um, this Quranic text, or I Really, I just want the Bhagavad Gita really, and I just want to study that. Great. But for so many of them, I think the objects of study, the data, the content, and this where I'm very much with Jonathan Smith is kind of arbitrary. It's it's an opportunity and a site to do all these other things, interpretation, description, analysis, whether it's interpretive or explanatory, um, to figure out new ways of talking about the world that we had not seen before. That's the value I think we give. If I'm in a a meeting with, you know, the Dean of Engineering, I'll probably try to figure out some more pragmatic things to say, given my setting, like the public subtitle, given my setting. But at the end of the day, we're helping students to be um, articulate problem solvers who know it's not going to be done for them. That's kind of how culture works. We're, We're all doing this. What their sets of interests are, where they want the this to go i don't know that's going to be different for each of them but i think we're we're giving them tools for intellectual self-defense how's that
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Uh, <laughs> that's uh, fascinating. Thank you for indulging the uh, the thirty thousand foot view question, uh, framed, of course, within the context of undergraduate teaching. Uh, where my mind goes because it's pertinent to something else. I happen to know that you're working on is what about grad students? Uh, what about what about their role? What about what are your experiences and innovations in that training and what that looks like and feel most free to talk about uh the current project that you have on hand as well I
1: hope it's not too loud I have a leaf blower outside my I'm on third floor but I I hear that buzzing out there it 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 takes a lot of work to make a campus look pretty (laughs) um yeah we talked briefly about this once before that um you're kind enough to write a forward for the book it's like uh, an edited book Um, with uh, that'll come out in 24 2024 with equinox in the uk but you know available here in north america on um trying to move the needle a little bit move the field a little bit in the direction of thinking of back to value right um entertaining that graduate education until something changes and that something is international economies, national funding priorities, taxation, this is a very big set of issues. So that, you know, aircraft carrier, that cruise ship isn't going to turn around overnight until that happens to figure out ways of training graduate students in our field, let alone the rest of the humanities for much wider careers than uh, professorships. Uh, Because we all know, and that's the problem, right? We all know that Um, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, you know, spoilers, Dr. Who. if you're a grad student, not paying attention to this, like we all know that the vast majority of graduate students, uh, will not become professors. That the jobs are not there. The funding is not there. Attrition is happening in many units. Uh, retirements are not being replaced. So attrition, um, funding is largely going to professional schools. Moms and dads and students are wisely cognizant of what will you do after you get this degree, especially depending where you're going to school, the cost of these degrees. Well, it's going up everywhere, but it's exorbitant in some places, maybe more middle-class affordable than others, but it's still going up. Um, So in that context, not of our making, um, why aren't doctoral programs especially up? Because that was the degree, preparing people for professorships, traditionally. um, Why aren't they adapting to this? And it strikes me that there's two ways of adapting. You know, either you cut your enrollment. You know, that's one way. um, Or you retool the entire program, curricula. What counts as a dissertation? And again, not for job training, but to help empower the students who want to acquire these thick research skills, deep dive into some item that they wish to study, to equip them to do something when they graduate other than scramble and self invent themselves. And, you know, my hats off, I, I got it, you always got to say these things the right way to the ones who have done that. There's a degree of bootstrap pulling up that tons of doctoral students who successfully finish their programs, and are quite successful in the use of research skills have had to do for the last 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. None of these problems came overnight. Certainly heightened dramatically by the post-2008 mortgage bubble collapse. Yes, heightened even more. Height is the wrong metaphor. We should talk about cliffs falling off of if you look at the employment graphs, right? Um, after COVID budget cuts, yes, heightened dramatically, but none of these things come as a surprise. And they've uh, the successes that they've had I think if you were to talk to many, and and we've talked about your trajectory, I I think many students are very happy they did a PhD, many graduates, but they know that they had to do this on their own, and their program wasn't part of that reinvention. And reinvention is now the wrong word to use. Right from the get-go, what are the wide application and diversity of careers that advanced research skills can be put to? So the book is about that. It's a collection of essays. Um, the the anchor piece is a piece that um, I was involved in co-writing with four other people, one my colleague here, Vaya Tuna, but um, uh, but three others, doctoral graduates who have each reinvented themselves, recent doctoral graduates, so not my generation, and then getting a variety of people in positions of responsibility in current graduate programs in America to reply to them. I asked a number of people, a number of programs, I'm not going to name them, but a number were too busy to take the project on. And I just thought, that's kind of part of our problem, that I don't want to say our house is on fire, but our house is kind of on fire. And if we can't, in probably rather short order, figure out, how doctoral programs in the study of religion can continue to train students in important skills by offering them a significant leg up on a variety of futures where they can put those skills to use. Do we need internships and doctoral programs? Like start thinking very creatively. If we can't do that, like daily I hear of a new small liberal arts or public university program losing its major, Uh, being combined with history and philosophy or modern languages. So any problem placing doctoral students now into professor positions, as challenging as it is, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And so I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish, but I'm hoping that the book and the sobering ground or reality, if you're paying attention to higher ed news, will help spark a bit of a conversation uh, on, you know, I know how I think I would do it, but there might be 15 other ways of doing it. I'm not sure what is the right way of doing it, but the it is revising graduate education to meet the need of the moment and to empower our um, students and alums to, you know, have a, a variety of really interesting and successful careers. That was a long rant. I know this is something that you're, very focused on as well.
2: Yeah, no, <laughs> it's always a scenic route right? The questions are always purposely naive and 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 um, intentionally generative to see what comes in. and And uh, listeners are interested, they're interested in in obviously critics, not caretakers, and the impetus behind that. They're interested in you know the the, the fields at large and um uh, without question, to my mind, the house is on fire and I'm the furthest thing from an alarmist As you, you know, I spend half my time when I'm not working, um, talking people off the ledge who are ensconced in the media about the current um, situation in the world. And um, I'm, I'm an anti-alarmist, but without question, the house is on fire, but perhaps the tower is so tall that we can't quite smell the smoke from the basement. Either way, um, you know, there in my own situation, I, I was convinced that I'd be able to get the job only because, um you know, I worked hard and I like we all do to get a PhD, but I had lots of work experience and I you know, had a stacked portfolio and teaching administration. It's just who I am. I have a variety of interests. Um, and I was shortlisted, I mean, at University of Calgary, which is a decent religious studies program, but I was shortlisted in the first year for you know, people from like Chicago and Harvard on their degree. So it was it was a solid application, clearly. Well, it wasn't about the brand name, let's put it that way. And in each case, the the, the job went to naturally the person who was the much clearer fit. I mean, I think in a couple of the cases, my research fit was so off from what um, they were looking for. That it, was, it probably must have been a teaching portfolio, the application, or something about the, you know the, the, something about um, the application, other than the research fit, which is why they interviewed me and, and had, had a campus visit, and you know the jobs went to the people who you know they were looking for someone for modern Hinduism, for example, or or or, or, or gender, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, uh, rarely will you find someone who's looking for a scholar of Sanskrit narrative, and 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 God forbid, someone has to sort of keel over or move on, and even then they probably wouldn't renew the position, so it wasn't a question of finding a job it was a question of there being a job to find there being a job to land and it was a question of do I want to relocate my life you know I I started the the degree in my 30s and at this point I'm finished do I want to relocate for a semester for for a space or university that I'm not particularly crazy for do I want to sort of pursue as a Think of it, the, the sessional or in America called adjunct, the adjunct rat race. Do I really want that sort of life? And never in a hundred thousand years did I see myself working for myself or entrepreneuring. I never took a business course. Um, that's not how my brain works. Um, but I love teaching. Uh, I love counseling and I can do that for myself technically as an entrepreneur. And I, I, I got great professional training as part of my degree. Well, great academic training, obviously, and great training on, you know, h- how to deal with the academic job market. Um, and I would not um, have traded that in for anything. What would have been amazing is, here are some other things you can do with a PhD. Hey, here's the permission. Here's the permission and the validation that there are other respectable, productive paths that are beyond the professoriate proper. You know, I would probably welcome a, a professorship of a word, a good fit, but I don't necessarily need one to produce. And I had no clue that was possible. I was hanging my head in shame for the first year or two saying, I, I, I teach online courses. And then the pandemic hit and I'm like, I teach online courses. Right. Was, everybody's like, how do you teach online courses? Um, but it was it was a really, really, really difficult um, path uh, that would have made been made much easier if there were, if there was space for that, these possibilities part of my training, and just very simple strategies that, I'll, that I teach to anybody who will listen, who's, who's getting a humanities PhD. So uh, enough of the autobiography or, the, or, 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 or clearly you're not my confessor, but um, uh, it's, it's, this topic is near and dear to my heart and I never thought it would be. Because I've had yeah. to engage this path, and I've, I have colleagues all the time. I mean, I'm fairly well connected and productive in the, in the field of Sanskrit narrative, and they're like, you know, why why don't you have a why don't you have a job? Why don't you apply for it, You know, blah 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 blah. But I'm like, you know, have you come across somebody looking for a position in Sanskrit narrative in the last seven years? Because <laughs> because I haven't. But um, uh, the world's changed, so I think in at least now you certainly can have a productive scholar who's not necessarily a professor in that sense, um, and a variety of other things one can do with their lives. Um, but in writing the, the forward for that, uh, it's called religious that is beyond the discipline for those listening, I'm sure we'll cover on the podcast in, in writing the forward. I think I use the terms clearly the, the house is on fire folks, um, because it, I didn't realize it was on fire during my training and it was, and now a decade later it's, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't gotten better by any stretch of the imagination, and um, I've been invited to three departments to speak about ways in which people can find jobs beyond the academy. But and I'm, I'm, I applaud those departments for doing so. But I'm I'm surprised that this isn't every department that has a major focus or course on altac enterprise. But anyway, like it's I great
1: you've been much. invited. That's great. But that's not the solution. The solution is. Your courses have to change. Your curriculum has to change. What counts? What's a dissertation? That's going to have to be revised. Do you have internships in your program? Like all these very big curricular things. And I think the impediment here is that the faculty who will have to make these changes are themselves living and working within one set of rules, their own career progress, the next book, the next grant. We, we all know how that works. But they're all, you know, now we're all back to Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, right? A book that everybody used to read. Well, they're on the edge of this paradigm shift that the people coming behind them for quite some time, by the way, that's not their parameters that they're probably going to be working in. So we have people who have tremendous inducements, incentives, pressures, you know, how do you want to describe these? not to engage in those adaptations because the scale of value that judges their career progress tends not to look at those things. And it's going to take back to the E word, some entrepreneurial faculty, graduate directors, department chairs, who recognize, and I hope it's not too late, you know, climate change becomes the, the metaphor here, the, the image that by the time you know there's a problem, it might be way too late. And I'm hopeful that's not where we are, but it's gonna take some very entrepreneurial people in decision-making capacities to persuade and motivate colleagues that this change has to happen. Without diluting the degree, I get so tired of that way of framing the issue, that one wouldn't one hope that these advanced research skills you're helping students acquire get put into use in a variety of places across culture, institutions, government, NGO, corporate, you tell me where this student wants to work because you know they got to make decisions about their own life. Um, that's not gonna change the world, but it would certainly thicken the process by which cultural decisions, political, economic, get made in society perhaps. Why aren't our PhDs working all across um, sectors uh, in society? But it's going to take some real determination, I think, on the part of people in decision-making positions and doctoral granting departments to engage in that hard work of reinventing. There's tons of resources out there. People have been writing on this across fields. But in the study of religion, there's a bit of a silence on it so far.
2: Yeah, and uh, certainly your publication uh, will, will, will change that Um, and I don't think it's too late uh, to innovate to pivot Uh, and I think I mean I I vividly recall a question about in one of the talks I gave in 2020 about how can uh, you know an advisor an academic advisor help a student along that path and I responded well he or she will have been trained in a particular path their whole life and will have never left it and is now a tenured prof in that path so it's perhaps unfair for them to guide someone from beyond that path but what is needed is consultancy or someone from the outside to come in so that folks can gain the entrepreneurial mindset and the, 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 what is needed to innovate that's needed at an administrative level i believe because not only um not only do we not see this the, the skills earned in a a, a, a phd doctorate applied in a variety of fields to which are relevant. We scarcely see them applied when people want a... How many times do we turn the news on and someone's speaking on religion and they haven't had a semester of religious studies? Mm -hmm. All the people who are speaking, pontificating, you know, on religion, generally don't have religion training. And so... There is there is a gap in terms of the application of what we do uh, in the public sphere and, and, and in a variety of sectors, I believe. Um, but it's it's going to take, I think, a change in the ethos and the uh, what we value, right? So we value online education in a way now that we certainly didn't five years ago. We value podcasts now. I've had three over three hundred guests on this podcast. More than half of whom have never been on a podcast. And many of the people listen to this podcast in the field. They don't listen to any of their podcasts. But because what is a podcast? Who knows what a podcast is, you know, to them. But this one is a value to them because of they get to keep up with their colleagues' work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're having a mindset, mindset shift in terms of the um, iterations of knowledge production and dissemination that we value. And it's not as if Just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it has to be junk food. It could be fine dining, right? So the caliber of training uh, need not be sacrificed for for the sake of its application or dissemination. And I think that's a major paradigm shift that's afoot for us.
1: I think you're right. By the way, I think podcasts are just on-demand radio shows. (laughs) (laughs) Right? All those really successful radio shows easily reinvented themselves as podcasts. They just... Recorded the episode and put it up, and called it episode one.
2: <laughs> Fantastic! So we're we're close to time for today, but I thought I just finally ask you: was there anything else about uh, the book, uh, current projects, you know, anything at all that you, you'd like to touch on before we close for the day?
1: I I think we've uh, taken more more than enough time with that listener who's out on a jog and can't believe they just invested fifty minutes in this. <laughs> No, I, I'm just flattered that you wanted to talk about it. I uh, I hope the new content of the book makes it worthwhile for people uh, who are picking it up. And uh, it'd be interested if, if they too think the uh, uh, those old, old challenges that people associate with long past method and theory debates um, are as relevant as they ever were.
2: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Raj. For those listening, we have, of course, in speaking with Dr. Russell T. mccutcheon on the second edition of um a work that is perhaps um yet quite relevant called Critics Not Car- Caretakers Redescribing the Public Study of Religion keep well keep reading keep safe until next time and uh keep contemplating how we study this thing called religion take care